Word. We come this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll be looking at verses 35 through 58. Last week, as Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he focused on explaining to them the necessity, the reality of the resurrection, that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then they are lost in their sins. Praise be to God that Christ is risen, which assures us of our resurrection and of our salvation. He continues to explain to this doubting and struggling congregation of the reality and the goodness of the resurrection. So let's pick up this morning and let's allow the Spirit to speak in and to us this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 35-58. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We heard God's word read aloud 
For some of us, it is sweet, sweet music. For some of us, it is a tune with which we are unfamiliar. Let us ask that the Lord, by His Spirit, would bless us as we come to better understand what He has for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, You have spoken through Your servant Paul to Your people in Corinth. Through the reading of your word, you have spoken already to us this morning. We pray that we would have ears to hear that your spirit would work life and renewal and refreshment in us, that we would be fed, that we would be instructed, that we would be convicted, and that we would be encouraged. Lord, all that I have to say this morning, would it be of you, and all that falls short would be quickly forgotten, blown away like chaff on the wind pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Sometimes the things that adults say don't make sense to little kids. We often think kids foolish and they say nonsense, but I remember when uh, an older woman in my life was walking around the house and I heard her comment to her husband, my dogs are barking. And I was like, you don't have any dogs. What are you talking about? And so I went and talked to my mom and said, so-and-so said that her dogs were barking, but she doesn't have any dark dogs. What does she mean? And my mom explained, well, that's just an expression that people say when their feet hurt. Her feet were hurting, and so she said her dogs were barking. And you would think that that would have helped, but at five or six, whatever age I was, I couldn't comprehend my feet hurting from just walking around. Maybe if I stepped on a Lego, maybe if my sibling stepped on my foot, I would understand my feet hurting. But at that tender age, I could not conceive of someone's feet hurting. But the longer I've been on this earth, the older I get, the more I understand. And that's why this morning I can, and I think most of you can, sympathize with the Corinthians. We've been reading, for those that have been with us, for many months now through this letter, and frankly, it's pretty easy to look down on the Corinthians, at least from our place in redemptive history, the blessings of teaching and theology for multiple centuries. But we've read of Paul correcting a church that is prideful. It's competitive. They are spending time exalting in who they are. They are getting drunk. Well, brothers and sisters go hungry. They're justifying sleeping with prostitutes or their father's spouse. They are taking each other to court to get rich because they don't feel like they can confront each other with the truth. It's easy to look down on them and say, what were you thinking? What do you believe, Corinthians? But if your feet have hurt, if your back has ached, if your eyesight has gotten weaker, if you've watched loved ones decline in physical and mental capacity, if you felt the pangs of hunger, as the Corinthians would have experienced far more than we would have in times of drought and famine, if you can imagine those who bear the scars of war and violence walk about with backs bent from decades of labor. 
you can understand a people who even in first century Rome and their colonies dyed their hair, painted their faces, and yes, even underwent cosmetic surgery because they were not satisfied with the look of their bodies, the shape of their faces. And so when a Savior promises eternal life with God, God who is spirit, we can understand the assumption that life entails the stripping away, the removing of this body that fails us, that hurts us, that lets us down and betrays us. We can understand the Corinthians saying, I can't wait until I'm done with this body. And so they doubt this teaching that know that our future is a body. But the salvation that is promised in Jesus is not culminated with less physicality, but greater, deeper, more glorious. God doesn't rescue us by releasing us, but transforming us, resurrecting us, making us new. This morning, our dogs may be barking, our back may be speaking to us. But this morning, let us hear much more loudly what God's word says about God's plan and promise for his people. What God's word says about the resurrection, what the resurrection says about God and what those things mean for us. Let's listen to what God's word reveals about resurrection. Paul addresses the Corinthians, and he addresses their doubt, their skepticism about a bodily resurrection, and he starts by pointing them to the source, about what God says is the source of resurrection. Now, the Corinthians don't understand how the dead can be raised, or at least what kind of body they would have, perhaps because they're thinking mostly in the line of reanimation. Maybe they've heard about Lazarus, and a man who died and came back to life, and For them, they're just thinking about reanimated corpses and and coming back in some temporary life. But then Paul says something pretty startling to them in verse 36. He's saying someone might ask these questions. He's kind of personifying some of the Corinthian doubts. And, And so he says in response to that person, maybe giving a little bit of distance from the Corinthians that are going to hear these next words, but he says in verse 36, you foolish person. Those are strong words for anyone who is familiar with Scripture. That is a strong accusation. Well, per Psalm 14, verse 1, and per Psalm 53, verse 1, we know a fool is the one that says in their heart, there is no God. Paul is not accusing the Corinthians of denying the reality of God overtly, but by implication... They are blinded to the reality of God's power. They are blinded to the reality of God's purposes. And so allowing their assumptions and their experiences to assume for them what is possible. They are looking to their experiences, what they've seen around them, what they have heard of in the past, and limiting the possibility of the future to the source of what is possible from within the world. Paul shows them that even then, they're being a little bit blind. He uses the analogy of the grain that is sown, and that seed dies before it comes to life in a new but continuous form. Verse 37, he says, it's a bare kernel. It's simple. It's limited. 
It doesn't look like it has within itself any possibility of something future. But then he goes on to say two words that whenever these show up in Scripture, we should pay attention. But God. That seed looks empty. It looks bare. It looks vulnerable. Verse 38, but God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. God gives the kernel its life, the body he has chosen for it. And then he illustrates how God has given various kinds of bodies and types of glory to various parts of creation. God made and chose bodies for animals and for humans, for fish and for birds. He made various forms of glory for the stars and the moon. He is saying that the source is not within us or what we conceive any more than our salvation is within us. In verse 21 through 22, he points out that our expectation is from what we've experienced in this world. Last week in verse 21, it says, For as, man, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If we are willing to take what Adam has offered us as the truth, then why will we not conceive what God has for us in Christ? This is reflected later in verses 45 through 46. It says this, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, right? Adam was dust, and he was formed of the dust, and then God breathed his spirit into him and gave him life. But the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Whereas Adam received life, the second Adam gives life. The source of this resurrection is not the man of the dust, it's the man of heavenly power. The life at work in Christ, the God-man incarnate by the Spirit, who healed the blind, who made the sick well, who made the dead walk out of the tomb, it is from him that resurrection life comes. If God can breathe life into dust, do we doubt that God can give a heavenly body to those whose earthly remains are buried in the dust? God's word says that the source of the resurrection is not within the power of the world, not within the power of ourselves, not what we've experienced from the past, but in the power that we've seen at work in Christ. Then he goes on to explain, well, what's the nature of this resurrected body? Just as God gives bodies to fish and birds and animals fit for their environment, verse 42 says, so it is with the resurrection. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised, imperishable. God, in the resurrection, inaugurated by Christ, is giving us a body Fit, not for continued existence in this broken, cursed, and suffering world. He's giving us a body fit for our new environment, the new heavens and the new earth in all eternity. In a few pithy words, Paul by the Spirit paints an inspiring picture of what God has in store for us in the resurrection. What is sown perishable, what is able to die, is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor 
It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. The nature of the resurrected body is a body that cannot die. It is a glorious body. It is a powerful body. It is a body fit to live with the eternal God. We long for details here, right? That paints a beautiful picture, and some of us might want to go on and say, well, well, tell me more. What can we do? What won't we be able to do? What will we look like? What will we feel like? Paul doesn't go into details here. But one of the things we often do is we, we ponder, well, what age are we going to be in our resurrected bodies? Some of us might think, oh, man, I would like to go back to childhood. I could just run and play all day with endless energy. Or, or maybe that burgeoning strength and vitality that comes with adolescence and the teenage years. Man, to feel full of ourselves, to, to be on that cusp of adulthood. Or to be at the top of our physical form as some view it in our 20s. Or maybe the confidence with which some of us are able to enjoy our bodies in our 30s and 40s. Which one of those stages will God resurrect our body to? Forgetting the lack of strength of our childhood, the squeaking of our voices and the smell of our bodies as the hormones rage through us in our teenage years, the lack of confidence, even as our bodies are fully formed, yet our lives are not in our young lives. We forget the existence of acne, the cracking of our skin as it models with age. Resurrection is not, brothers and sisters, restoration. It is not taking a classic car that's been beaten up by dust and rust and age and putting it back to its quote-unquote former glory so it can drive the streets again. God is not giving us a body fit for this failing world. He is giving one for a new stage of life, for the heavenly. And that's why the resurrection is necessary. This isn't just an add-on. God's word shows us that not only is he the source of the resurrection, not our daily experience or within us, that the nature of this resurrected body is not just a restoration to the old, but something new and more, but it's necessary. We live among cultures that often view history as a circle or a loop, that we want to go back to some bygone age. We just want to get back to the 50s. Or, or maybe in England, to the imperial strength of England. Or to the days of, of a lack of industrialization when we lived off the earth. We often tell stories where we just want to get back. But the biblical story is linear. It moves forward. It starts somewhere good. It starts somewhere great. Things get bad, but the good news, the beautiful ending is not that we get back to where we started, but we go beyond where we started through what God does. We start with a natural physical body, but after that comes a spiritual one. God grants us not restoration, but more than we had to begin with. While it's true that what was lost in the garden will be restored, the story doesn't place us back in the garden at the end of the story. It places us in the city of God where the tree of life is planted. This is what God has in store for us. 
So verse 50 tells, you, tells us this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. As you and I are right now, even forgiven of our sins, we cannot inherit the kingdom. We cannot walk through those pearly gates as we are right now forgiven of our sins because we are not clothed in eternal glory in bodies fit. And so it is necessary, because we cannot inherit the kingdom, that the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable, that he raises us imperishable, that he makes us immortal. That even those that will be walking and alive, Paul says not only will those who are dead rise, but even those who are still alive will be changed. We are transformed for life in the eternal kingdom. And the victory over death accomplished by Christ necessitates a day when death is no more. Fairy tales tell us a story. Aladdin doesn't go back to living on the streets. He ends up in the palace. Even those stories that start with princesses like Snow White don't end with her going back to being a princess, but her coming to her fruition as a queen. So it is with what God has in store for us that in order for us to embrace the more that he has for us, he transforms us into something more. And so what is what God's word says about the resurrection as the source and the nature of it and the necessity of it? What does that say about us? The source being not what's available to us in creation, not what's available to us within our power, but that God is the source, that it comes to us from God through Jesus Christ. means that when many of us think that there is no life after death, and when we live around people that think that, that there's the temptation to think that the problems of this world become our burden alone to solve. And so we put our hope in medicine, we put our hope in technology, Diet, government, education. And so when these are all that we can hope for to solve the problems of breaking down bodies, of weakening minds, of suffering and sorrow, when these are our only hopes, we begin to ignore their weaknesses and their inabilities, the holes. And we begin to totalize them and idolize them and attack those who threaten them. Our salvation is not within us, but it is from God. The same God who gave us the bodies from Adam, which we place under the subjection and suffering of death through sin, God gives us new life through his Son. The nature of that resurrection body reminds us that we are bound for glory that the best is yet to come for us, that while it is appropriate to lament our illness and our pain and our suffering and our weakness, that these also become an opportunity to rejoice and give thanks for what God has offered to us. That because of the resurrection, we can be a people of hope even in the midst of suffering which allows us then to not deny suffering, but we can be honest about our suffering, to say, this is not all there is to me. That I am struggling with cancer. That my body does not feel right. 
that I'm sick and tired of life in this world. I can be honest because that's not all there is for me. And God has offered something better. And the necessity means for us that God wants us. That God will not stop at anything to redeem and restore us to relationship with him. That he provides for us to share our eternal home with him. So he provides for our salvation and forgiveness of our sins. And that is the first step because an unholy people cannot live with a holy God, an unrighteous people with a perfectly righteous God. Bodies of flesh and blood, perishable and mortal, not fit for the eternal glory of living in the new heavens and new earth. And so he gives us that too. In Christ, he gives us all we need. That's what God's word tells us about resurrection. What does resurrection tell us about God? Most of this isn't new. God's word testifies to these things elsewhere, but the resurrection reaffirms the truth of who God is according to God's word. First of all, it testifies to God's power. When we consider that God is the source of our resurrection, we consider his power. That he is not a God contained within. He is not a God limited to the boundaries of creation, what we see around us. He is not the same as creation. He is the God who created the bodies of the earth, the glories of the sun and the moon, and he is the God who by his power gives us resurrected bodies. And not, as we notice, through a slow evolution as man progresses over time with more technology and education until we perfect ourselves so as to live like gods. Not even a process that necessitates death. Verse 52 says, in the twinkling of an eye. The still cooking, the still walking, the still working men and women who walk this earth shall be transformed in an instant. Just as God said, let there be light, and there was light, so shall the heavenly music herald Christ's coming, announce a new creation. When God says, let the dead live, they shall live. When he says, let the living be clothed with immortality, they shall be. While all creation heralds the power and majesty of our creator God, the mystery revealed that even the living shall be transformed when Christ returns reminds us that we have not begun to understand or comprehend what is the might and power of God towards those whom he loves, who made us, who offers us forgiveness and reconciliation. It allows us to believe what Romans 8, 38-39 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. His power, as demonstrated in the resurrection, shows us that there is nothing greater in this world. His grace, is also revealed in what we understand about the resurrection. Sometimes we speak about mercy and grace interchangeably, but we usually seek to differentiate them. And if you forget, well, the great theologians of the Newsboys uh, may be helpful here. If you're not familiar with the Newsboys, they were a 
contemporary Christian band in the 90s. And they have a song where, that begins like this. When we don't get what we deserve, that's a really good thing. When we get what we don't deserve, that's a really good thing. The first is mercy, when we don't get what we deserve. Judgment, death, and eternal damnation. When we get what we don't deserve, love, adoption, and a resurrected body for glory, that's a really good thing, and that's grace. Mercy is undeserved rescue. Grace is undeserved riches. God is gracious. Not only does he send his son to fulfill the law, and so offer his life so that we are no longer under the condemnation of the law, so that the sting of death is removed and the power of sin, the law, is no more over us. Not only does he demonstrate mercy, but he gives us what we don't deserve, eternal life in the eternal kingdom with a body fit for that glory. Not only does he invite us to the great feast of the king, but when our closet is full of just jeans and t-shirts, he gives us gowns and tuxedos fit for a feast with the king. Let us remember that God gives resurrection to those whose sin brought death and destruction. And God's response is not just to restore us to where we were through forgiveness, but to give us more than we ever thought we could have. To give us bodies restored in the image, not of Adam who ruled over this earth from the garden, but bodies transformed to the image of his eternal son who rules incarnate, raised from the dead over the heavens and the earth. Lastly, the resurrection shows us God's victory. His victory over sin, over death. The victory is his. He is God. God cannot be defeated. And he has shown that victory in Christ. And we give him thanks that Jesus was victorious, removing the sting of death, which is sin, by his sacrifice, removing us from the power of the law to condemn. Because we have seen that in Christ's resurrection, we know that victory was not just won in the past, but victory is assured for the future. And that victory is not only Christ, but he shares it with us. Though death remains, it is toothless. I had a lacrosse coach, and I don't remember why he told us this, but he told us about toothless lions. He said, when lions get old, when their teeth begin to fall out or are no longer sharp, these older toothless lions, their job on the hunt was to roar. And the idea was that the prey would hear the roar of the toothless lion, not knowing that it was toothless, and run in the opposite direction to the quiet, waiting lions with plentiful sharp teeth and claws. Death roars loudly. It roars in the streets. It roars on the newscast. It roars in our aches and our pains, but it roars as a toothless lion. When Jesus emerged from the grave, he held open the mouth of death and said, there is no bite here. Jesus' victory over sin means death has lost and will lose. Heart attacks will not win. Car accidents will not win. Miscarriage will not win. Cancer will not win. 
death will not win. Because Christ has won and he will share that victory with us. What does that mean for us? That God's power means we are to look up and not within or not even around us. That just as the power of our salvation is not within us, so the power of resurrection and future glory is not in us but God. That teaches us to pray, knowing that God can do more than we would ever imagine. That we are not called to limit God and merely ask for what we think is possible. But if we have trouble conceiving of the resurrection and yet God grants it to us in Christ, what more can he also do when we trust in his power? When we see the grace shown us in resurrection, it lets God's gift speak louder than the suffering. When we ask, do I matter because I hurt so much, because my friends hurt so much? We know God loves us so much not only to forgive us through the work of Jesus, but to lavishly give us eternal life and all that is necessary to dwell with him. That generosity is not based on anything within us, but his character, his graciousness. And thus, when we look to Christ and what he did on the cross, when we look to his resurrection, his ascension to glory, his promise to come again, we can let that drown out the condemnation that comes with the accusations of the evil one when we fall short. We can know that our unresolved pain and struggle is not the lack of God's goodness, but that he has something better, something free of charge, undeserved, and yet ours by right as adopted children of the king. What does the victory seen in resurrection mean for us? First of all, it confirms that death is our enemy. Some of us have grown accustomed or been around people that just act as if death is just normal. It's just one stage in the process. That is not the way it was meant to be. Death is an intruder. It is an outsider. It is an enemy. This means that while we hope in the resurrection, that doesn't remove the right and the goodness of us mourning the suffering and the pain that come with death. And that should cause us to ask whether the lion that is roaring has teeth for us. That if we are in Christ, then the roar of death means nothing to us. But if we are not in Christ, then the sting of sin still remains for us because he is the one that removes that sting. Have we trusted in Christ who removes the sting of death? Or are we hoping that we've lived a good enough life? That we're a pretty good person most of the time? Do we trust ourselves? Or do we trust in the one who death could not contain? That causes us not to give up, but to work hard, to remain steadfast, as Paul encourages. While the Corinthians are tempted to feed the body, to comfort it in the midst of pain with food and drink and sex, instead we give the bodies which God has given us for the work he has given us, knowing that we labor as those who are victors that nothing sown in the name of the king is lost. Perhaps you've seen me trip up here or look down to adjust something. There's a nice little mat up here. Comfortable. It's been here since I got here because someone recognized that to stand up here for 30 or 40 minutes, usually in dress shoes, 
it hurts the feet. I believe in the resurrection. That does not change the fact that right now my feet hurt. And I can understand why the Corinthians were tempted to believe what they believed, but I don't want to live like the Corinthians. I don't want to plug my ears to the truth because of the limits of what my eyes have seen or because of what I feel within my body. I want to hear the truth. I want to live according to the truth that Jesus is risen from the dead and that when He comes with that last trumpet sounding His victory, so shall I, so shall you, so shall we rise. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Lord, we look to the resurrection of the dead because of the resurrection of Christ and the victory that is His. Would we walk in that victory? In Jesus' name, amen.